Welcome to the Tennis with an Accent radio show. Uh, I am Matt Zemek, and I'm joined by my co-host, Saqib Ali. And uh, we are coming toward the end of Wimbledon 2018, the 132nd edition of the championships. Uh, it's been a memorable fortnight uh, at SW19, which, for those who don't know, is the postal address uh, for the Wimbledon Village. That's why they call it SW19 at times. Uh, we have a women's final that, as we record this episode, has just ended on uh, Saturday afternoon. And then we have a men's final that's coming up on Sunday. Uh, at the time of the recording of this broadcast, you will know uh, the, the players involved. But at the time that we're recording this episode, we still don't know. So we are going to review the men's and women's tournaments at Wimbledon, and we are going to offer perspective on what it would mean for the various uh, women's and men's finalists. Uh, to win the Wimbledon Championship in 2018. Um, let's let's get our radio show started with uh, an appraisal of uh, the two the two men's finalists and the featured semifinal that took place on Friday. Rafael Nadal and Novak Djokovic uh, met on Friday in the semifinals of Wimbledon, their first major semifinal in five years. Uh, since the 2013 Roland Garros semifinal, which was won by Nadal in an extended fifth set. Uh, it's their first meeting at any major tournament since the 2015 Roland Garros quarterfinals, uh, a match in which Djokovic scored his only victory over Nadal at Roland Garros uh, in straight sets. So with Djokovic making his first major semifinal since the 2016 U.S. Open, this is a return of sorts. It's a return of Djokovic to the big stage. It's a return of Djokovic and Nadal uh, to, to a major semifinal uh, for the first time since the Federer-Nadal uh, return to prominence in men's tennis, uh, which began at the 2017 Australian Open final. So, Sakib, uh, as, we, as we consider what it would mean, for either Nadal or Djokovic, the winner of the Friday semifinal, uh, to lift a Wimbledon trophy on Sunday. Um, what what are the paramount stories and the paramount reactions that you have to either player possibly lifting this trophy? Let's start. Let's start with Djokovic. Um, we, we've been saying, or at least wondering, if he's been back uh, for several months now, and uh, over the past few months. He's gotten a little bit closer and a little bit closer, but the progress hasn't all come at once. It's come in stages. So if he if he manages to win this Wimbledon final on Sunday, what do you think is the big takeaway from such an achievement for Djokovic? Look, I mean, uh, anytime you win a major, it's huge. And uh, when you're talking about a legend of the game like Novak Djokovic, I mean, you know, uh, I've been talking about him. You've been talking about him since uh, – he, he's, you know, he's parted with his Andre Agassi after the dismal uh, run in the, in the North American uh, Spring tournaments in uh, California and in uh, Florida. Uh, he, he's shown promise. You know, slowly he's coming back to the old level, and now we learn more about that. You know, he was carrying an injury, so th- there's a huge narrative. And anytime you put these two guys or any of the top three or top four guys, like the big four, they call it in tennis, uh, the match becomes high stakes. No matter where is it, London. Uh, it could be a tournament in Basel, it could be Queens, or it could very well be the semifinal or final of Wimbledon. And that being said, I mean, uh, for Djokovic, you know, he was the best player not too long ago. Our memories are short. I mean, anytime he would lose a set, that would become big news. So that's how dominant this guy was. And uh, Roger Federer, Rafa Nadal, and Andy Murray, and Stan Wawrinka were all playing pretty solid tennis then. Everyone's at their peak. Who Who can tell that? It's such a revolving door. Uh, you know, your gain is my loss, and sometimes my gain is your loss, and that's how the timing works in tennis. And uh, that being said, Nadal knows, because when Djokovic was playing his best tennis for all those two and a half, three years when he was the player to beat, he had Rafa Nadal's number in, even on any surface, uh, including clay. And there was a time, I think, he won nine of ten matches, and he won 11 or 13 sets in a row. I'm just, you know, uh, I don't know what the exact stats are, but those were pretty close, what I just said. Uh, and that being said, Nadal, you know, for him also, uh, this, this is a very high-stake match because number one ranking, it has been in play between Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal. And now with Federer losing in quarterfinals, that's uh, that's a good swing for Nadal because that's the stage where he lost last year, if I'm not mistaken, maybe fourth round to Gilles Muller. So not only can he gain a lot of points, 
and then he can also make uh, the the nuclear arms race, which is the all-time major race between uh, Nadal and uh, Federer, and followed by Djokovic. The gap could become two if Nadal were to beat Djokovic and lift this trophy on Sunday. I know we are getting a little ahead of ourselves, but this is again a very high-stake match. Going back to your original question, I think Djokovic can really establish, you know, his comeback cycle to to a full full circle if he if he beats Nadal and contends. Uh, in the Sunday final of the championships, and uh, he'll be the huge favorite no matter who comes out from the other side, which we will talk about the other semi shortly. But that's time. That's what I think. It's a very high stake match between two, you know, two gladiators who've met more than anyone I think in professional tennis, and they have had their own special rivalry. It's physical tennis at its best. And uh, but interestingly, let me ask you this: given Djokovic's dominance over Nadal for those two three years that I mentioned. Even though Nadal has won the last two matches in Madrid and Rome this year, uh, you think uh, who who will have some sort of a psychological edge when they do take place when they, they face off on Friday semis? It's a it's a fascinating question to to, to think about uh, retrospectively in, in, in to that semifinal. The recent run of play has obviously belonged to Nadal, but. They haven't met at a major in a few years, and if you recall the 2017 Australian Open final between Federer and Nadal, one of the things that made that match so interesting and also which made it so different is that Federer had not played Nadal at a major in three years uh, when he got to that match. That 2017 Australian Open final was preceded by a 2014 Australian Open semifinal. Federer and Nadal went three years without meeting each other at a major, similar to this three-year gap uh, between Djokovic and Nadal at a major. Federer's lack of continuous play against Nadal at major tournaments, it ironically freshened his mind for that 2017 meeting in Melbourne. He didn't have as many scars. He didn't have as many recent bad memories, and it liberated him. So Djokovic, uh, when he enters this match uh, against Nadal, um, the, re- the recent loss in Rome, the Rome semifinals, and also the fact that Djokovic has been building his game uh, from a diminished place due to his recuperation from injury, I don't think that that's going to matter. He should be very confident, very upbeat, uh, very positive about his situation. So the, the time spent away from playing Nadal at major tournaments, uh, that's probably going to help Djokovic, and it's probably going to give Nadal, in his own right, uh, the sense that what happened years ago really isn't going to affect the rivalry. It's going to be a new stage, uh, a new point in time for both men. That's part of what uh, sh- should make that semifinal so exciting, and obviously we're talking at a point where the, the outcome already occurred, uh, but speaking before the fact, that gap in time uh, should produce very confident and emboldened tennis from both men. Is it a 50-50 match for you, or you have a fifth-light favorite? I, I always thought this was going to be a close match. I always thought that there was no clear favorite, and I, I said that just because uh, of the the mystery enfolding that match due to the lag in time and also due to uh, this being grass, not a surface where they have met very often. It's uh, They've met in uh, at Wimbledon uh, only one, uh, one other time this decade, that being in the 2011 Wimbledon final. So there's such a small track record between these two guys. They did meet, uh, you know, a decade ago, but only once in this calendar decade uh, at Wimbledon. So it really just makes the match very uncertain, but also very interesting. And, and it'll be interesting to see uh, how that semifinal unfolded on Friday. And uh, let me add one thing. In that match you mentioned the decade ago, Djokovic didn't finish. So I think this is, you know, a semifinal which hopefully both men will finish and produce, I think, uh, some stellar tennis. And I would also like to mention, because uh, Djokovic, you know, as great a player as he is, uh, and not his fault, and a lot of times he's just come second in terms of like popularity contests at these major cities, which shows the big majors. And Roger Federer and uh, followed closely by Rafa Nadal are the two uh, sentimental or you know crowd favorites wherever they play. And uh, but I, to me, this is an advantage for Djokovic because I want to bring the Kyle Edmund match 
because Federer and Nadal are not used to being cheered again, even when they play local, you know, local players at their home tournaments. Djokovic sometimes, I think, he takes his best tennis and he probably elevates his game when the crowd is against him and that's what happened against the Kyle Edmund match. And as a result, he came back very focused and you can feel, uh, you know, you can disagree with me if you don't, don't feel this way. And to me, I really made him a contender. He was in my shortlist. The moment I saw the match against the Russian uh, Karen Hashinov, uh in the in the fourth round, and then I know it's this this Novak Djokovic really looked like the steely you know uh, nerve you know of the of the champion of the past. He, he looked like his old self. The game may not be there, but his resolve and focus is there, and I believe that's what can make the difference. If the pro Nadal crowd shows up uh, on center court, and uh, I expect Novak Djokovic, I'm giving him a slight edge, but again, you know Nadal can make me look very foolish by winning this whole thing. But uh, I, I agree with you. It's a 50-50 call. But uh, I'm just giving that extra edge to Novak when the crowd becomes a factor because he's someone who's really good at diffusing, you know, the crowd support. Well, it'll be interesting for, for listeners as they uh, follow this radio show today on Saturday to see just how pro-Nadal a crowd it was uh, on Friday. Uh, it'll, it'll, be, it'll be interesting to gauge that just because – there haven't been many center court clashes between the two and what the crowd dynamic would be. Um, it'll be interesting to get the post-mortem on that match, however it went, uh, and to see which way the crowd leaned. Um, shifting, shifting gears now, we did talk a little bit about Roger Federer, uh, the man who didn't make this Wimbledon semifinal, who didn't join the other two members of the big three in this party, uh, he would have faced John Isner in the semifinals. It would have been a dream draw for him. Uh, he would have been a huge favorite to get to the final, but of course he didn't get there. And he didn't get there because Kevin Anderson stood in his way in what was a very memorable match. Wednesday in the quarterfinals at Wimbledon, we had two five-setters, one involving Federer, one involving Nadal. Nadal was able to win against Juan Martin Del Potro in five sets, but a fifth set for Federer didn't go the same way. Sakib, what is your sense uh, about the fallout from Federer's loss? Uh, many people have many different opinions on the severity of that loss and also Federer's role in allowing that loss to happen. Where do you fit in on the spectrum in terms of, A, how significant a loss it is, and, B, uh, how much of a role Federer had in causing his own problems? Look, anytime you have that kind of a match, and I loosely use the word epic, but I think in Kevin Anderson's terms, and when we will look back at this match few years from now, when Federer is, is, is done and dusted and so is Anderson, everybody's retired, this is going to qualify as one of, you know, the key Wimbledon moments of, uh, you know, this last this last decade, because Federer is so dominant, he's only come in second to the brilliance of Novak Djokovic and then epic match he lost to Nadal. Uh, other losses have been, you know, they have a verdict and now... Songa was one close loss in Anderson. So my take is when when you have this kind of a match, you know, it's a tale of two cities. Did Federer allow? Did Federer slip? Let, let you know a match a match point that he had. Yeah, you can look at that. But you know, Kevin Anderson was battling such history. He was battling such demons. You know, he'd never taken a set against Roger Federer. Their matches were so one-sided. Federer destroyed him in Cincinnati. Granted, both men are slightly different in their careers now when they met in uh, in America. You know, in three years ago in Cincinnati. Uh, but you know. That's why we have this discussion so many times for tennis fans. If it was best of three, Federer would have won. But in best of five, sometimes people, the players do settle down. They find solutions, and sometimes a player who's riding a hot hand can just – it's such a rhythm game. Federer was just maybe off. I didn't watch those sets three and four. But uh, I want to just remind some people that's how tennis is a game of such close margins. Anderson was looking like the better player in the tiebreak, and then Federer won five points in a row. So there's always, like, so many mini – you know, momentum swings during a match. You can always, you know, it's always good to do a postmortem because Roger, you know, he rarely loses, uh, at least in the last year and a half. He's been very selective. He's playing good, good tennis. And, uh, yeah, the postmortem is, it was just like one of those losses. I think uh, Federer played a similar match, like, uh, against Andy Roddick in the 29th final. And he was serving first, which is always good in the fifth set, especially in a grass court tournament where, you know, you'll always put the pressure on your opponent by holding. And and I think the tennis level, what I've read and what I've watched, I didn't watch the match live because I was at work. It was pretty stellar. Both men produced some like heavy, you know, uh, some some good heavy tennis when they were down 15, 30, 30, 
all or not thirty. That's what grass court tennis is. And even our good friend Murder Tunga, you know, he thought Federer, if he was not at his super best level, he was playing pretty solid tennis. So I want to give some credit to Anderson. Of course, uh, Federer fans are very disappointed because people who don't follow tennis don't realize how big a following Roger Federer has. Uh, you know, it's just like it's comparable to maybe LeBron or Jordan or even because such a global sport. And maybe it's bigger in certain pockets. So, uh, but I would like to add, I mean, with Federer, you know, it's all about the majors and scheduling. Uh, this loss, obviously Wimbledon is his favorite time of the year, always hurts. But I think compared to last year, he could be in a better position to, you know, make a proper assault at the U.S. Open and Cincinnati, those tournaments where he's always played his best tennis. He's won Cincinnati, I think, seven or eight times. Hasn't won the Open in almost a decade, but is always in the conversation. So I think uh, this loss, loss, you know, obviously he would have played the final. Give him three, four days extra. He's probably back in Switzerland, and he's going to make a plan if he's going to play in Canada or not. I think he will come out uh, supercharged. Uh, for the North American swing, and especially U.S. Open as the big, big target because he hasn't won there in you know in almost ten years. Awesome insights, Sakib. I would just add a few points to this, just and not to replicate anything you said, but just to add some other things to the mix. Uh, first of all, anyone who thinks that the shifting of that Federer-Anderson match from center court to court one, anyone who thinks that the shifting of the match in terms of the scheduling had anything to do with the outcome, needs to realize that seven years ago, Federer lost one of his other matches from two sets up. Federer's record at the four major tournaments when leading by two sets in a match is now 266 and three. So two of those losses came at Wimbledon. The other one came in 2011 to Joe Wilfred Sanga. That was on center court. And it was a match that in some ways wasn't really exactly like the Kevin Anderson match, but in other ways it was exactly like the Anderson match. Federer won a clean first set against Sanga seven years ago. He won the second set in a tie break. He served first in the third, fourth, and fifth sets, but Sanga found a way to break him and win that match coming from behind in five. And we know that Sanga has not had a spectacular career. He's had a good career, but not a spectacular one. Anderson is very much in that same boat. Uh, both Sanga and Anderson have made one major final. And as we talk uh, about uh, Wimbledon, it could be that as of Saturday, Anderson has advanced to his second major final, but we just don't know that as we record this conversation right now. So Sanga and Anderson stand on very similar platforms in terms of achievements. Neither one was expected to beat Federer, not Sanga seven years ago, not Anderson uh, this past Wednesday, but they both did it, and they both played matches that they will remember for the rest of their lives. So while we expect Federer to always come through because he's done it time and time and time again, uh, that doesn't change the fact that Sanga seven years ago and Anderson this past week played incredibly well to do what they did. Uh, another parallel to point out is that in Federer's 2016 Wimbledon semifinal against Milos Raonic, uh, late in the fourth set, everyone would agree that he should have forced a tiebreaker. You know, he made a few errors, uh, specifically double faults, which prevented him from getting into a fourth set tiebreaker against Raonic. Uh, Raonic broke him and then won that match in five sets. On a similar level, everyone agrees that Federer should have been able to break Kevin Anderson's serve uh, at 6-5 in the third set uh, on Wednesday. He should have been able to get into uh, a third set tiebreaker. But getting into a tiebreaker, as he should have done with Raonic two years ago and as he should have done with Anderson this past week, it's not the same as saying Federer should have won the match. So that is another very strong parallel with the past. Uh, one other thing to say is that if Wimbledon did not work out for Roger Federer, it's not really that crushing this year. It would have been a lot more crushing had it occurred last year because Federer had not yet won his record-breaking eighth Wimbledon title. But now that he has eight Wimbledon titles, he is the outright leader in Wimbledon titles. And as you alluded to, Sakib, this frees him up for the U.S. Open, and if he does win the U.S. Open, guess what? 
Federer would be the outright uh, open era leader in U.S. Open titles one. You have Jimmy Connors there with five. Federer would be able to exceed him with six in the open era. So in many ways, winning the U.S. Open this year and not Wimbledon would be in many many ways a good historical trade-off for Federer. So there's lots of good things to come out of this. And I think that the historical resonance might be bigger, not from Federer's inability to win, but from Anderson's ability to win, especially if he beats Isner in the semifinals. You know, Anderson would make a second major final. And if you study the history of tennis, there are a lot of one-hit wonders. A lot of players who got hot at one tournament, one major tournament, and then didn't do anything else. So if indeed Anderson is in the final on Sunday, if he does indeed beat John Isner, getting to that second major final would immediately crush the notion that the 2017 U.S. Open was his only big major tournament. Getting Clearing that hurdle and getting to a second major final, it's a very big deal in tennis. For those who don't follow the sport closely, when you get to a second major final, and, and even on a higher level, when you go from one major title to two major titles, it is a, that is a huge threshold that you have crossed. And it's important to really underscore that. Um, no, absolutely. I just want to add that uh, even uh, if he fails to reach this final, he's definitely playing at a very high level because the way he beat Federer, you know, because uh, tennis is such a mental game. It's an individual game. There's no coaching on the men's side. So you have to problem solve. And he beat, uh, you know, Federer, who's known as basically the king at Wimbledon, uh, with such an aura. Uh, and, you know, the crowd support. And he's so clutch. And, you know, Federer really didn't, you know, uh, lose that match. In the end, Anderson just won it. And it's, it's not even a mental lapse. But the only double fall that Federer committed came at such a pivotal moment that and it gave Anderson that final break that he needed. But I would like to add in something, Matt, that, you know, we spoke uh, about. When I was in Miami, I had a small interview with Kevin Anderson. and. Uh, and most people who don't follow tennis, you know, t- top ten is such a landmark, but then within top ten, top five are such a very different resident. It's just like the penthouse. And then there's number one is just a helipad, you know, like no one goes there. It's just like – so I asked Anderson, do you think you believe uh, you belong in the top ten? And he said, the way I'm playing, if I play my best tennis, I believe I'm playing top five tennis. And that was such a big, big uh, comment from him. But he, you know, he didn't – you know, he just stated what he felt. And uh, that's exactly what came to my mind when I was listening to the commentary when Wayne Ferreira was talking about for BBC with Anderson and uh, Federer. And I just thought maybe this is, you know, the match he wanted. And, of course, I I thought Federer would still win it. But these are the kind of opportunities when you have to convince yourself when the opportunity knocks there, you have to just grab it or sometimes create an opening. And that's what he did. And I will always remember those comments when he said, you know, if he believes he's playing top five tennis. But on that note, let me switch to his opponent, John Isner, who himself is kind of a late bloomer. He has a big game. Um, many thought he would be, you know, at least following in the footsteps of Andy Roddick, but he was never, uh, he never, you know, channeled his uh, big serve and powerful game into the best of five format, which would ideally suit him, but he seldom breaks serve. But all that has changed in the last, you know, year. He won the Miami 1000 Masters, which is considered the sixth or seventh most prestigious tournament in the world. He beat Germany, Sasha Zverev, and now he comes into this match playing his first major semi, uh, and he's, he's he's not a young guy. Tennis is, you know, if you look at the average age, all these guys are 30 or above. So uh, I'll let you talk about him, John. Uh, sorry, Matt, uh, about John is there, but I would like to say if he gets into the final, and again, the record, you can throw the record book out there, both Nadal and Djokovic probably have convincing wins over him in head-to-head department. I have a feeling if if he gets there, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he gets the job done because he didn't envision, like Anderson, to be ever in this position. He was working for it, and I'm sure his eyes are all lit up and he's looking at set by set. I don't. I wouldn't be surprised if Isner comes and delivers like an all-time 45 aces in three or four sets and takes the title. I know most people will say, what am I thinking? But how many of us thought he would even get there? Over to you. Absolutely. A a, a great historical parallel. If Isner makes the final, and and especially if he wins it, would be Goran Ivanisevic. Uh, Ivanisevic was a serve and really not that much else. He was a player who 
flourished at Wimbledon, didn't really flourish at the other three majors. Now, now Isner does not have Ivanisevic's overall career track record. You know, Ivanisevic made three Wimbledon finals in the 1990s before he won his title in 2001. But the similarity is, is as I said earlier, that Ivanisevic had an overwhelming serve, which grass as a surface rewarded far more than any other surface. That That's definitely a parallel with Isner. And if Isner wins at age 33, uh, and, and he, uh, of course, he just made his first major semifinal at age 33. If he's playing in the final on Sunday, that's his first major final at age 33. Uh, arriving at this moment in his career would definitely be a similarity with Ivanisevic, who won his title uh, pretty much at the end of his career, just before he uh, retired and then moved on into coaching, where, interestingly enough, he coached the man who lost to Isner in the quarterfinals, Canada's Milos Raonic. In terms of assessing Isner's form at, relative to a possible final, if he is there, Sakib, the fact that Raonic came up with a, a yet another injury, uh, Raonic has had a snake-bitten career marked by a lot of injuries, Raonic, was visited by the trainer in the fourth set against Isner on Wednesday for a groin problem. Uh, two years ago, Raonic had a groin problem in the 2016 Australian Open semifinals against Andy Murray, a match he led two sets to one, uh, but that, that injury flared up in the fourth set, and he wasn't able to finish uh, that match. He wasn't able to win it. So Isner beat uh, an opponent who was not 100% in terms of physical fitness, and Isner also received the benefit at this Wimbledon tournament of being placed uh, in a quarter with Grigor Dimitrov, you know, whom everyone wants to be able to play in terms of top eight seeds. And he was also landing in the quarter with Marin Cilic, who got upset in the second round. So Isner had the great draw, both in terms of on paper with Dimitrov and in terms of upsets occurring uh, with Cilic losing. So he hasn't played the toughest string of opponents. So if we're going to compare Isner to Anderson as possible final opponents for Nadal or Djokovic, Anderson's definitely the tougher opponent. I would say that Isner has the better chance of playing and winning tiebreakers because his serve alone is better than Anderson's. So if Isner has that great serving day you talk about, yes, he could. He, he would have a better chance of holding serve throughout the match, and Isner has not been broken entering the semifinals. We'll see if Anderson managed to break him, uh, but, you know, w sometimes you can win Wimbledon matches against great players without ever breaking the opponent's serve. Uh, that applied to Michael Stieck in 1991. He never broke Stefan Edberg's serve uh, in that 1991 semifinal, but he was able to win three tiebreakers. That's obviously the path and the template Isner would need uh, on Sunday should he get there. So I give Isner a chance of winning tiebreakers, but in terms of playing a long match and more broadly socket, being able to win points in all kinds of ways, not just with the serve, but from the baseline with a full range of ground strokes, Anderson is definitely the player who in terms of stamina and all shot quality is more positioned uh, to give Nadal or Djokovic a run. With Isner, if Isner wins, it's going to be like Ivanisevic, totally with the serve. If Anderson wins, it's because he's able to stay in a few rallies while also hitting what is a very, very above-average serve. No, I, I agree. I mean, Isner definitely, compared to Anderson, is not is a one-dimensional player, and that's there's a reason, you know, he's never been to even the second week of Wimbledon before. But this year, you know, for the audience who hasn't tuned in, Wimbledon usually is unusually is experiencing uh, hot weather by British standards, and uh, the courts are dry, which means higher bounce, firm baseline, and Isner being at 6'10". He, he, his knees and, you know, his height, he prefers a higher bouncing ball. So that's, that's the reason Rafa Nadal is having a great Wimbledon, because the conditions are also playing a part. And John Isner, I think, like, I, I agree, everything Matt has said, but I think it's more like an X factor, it's like a wild card. I think it's maybe the draw is opening up. You know, if Isner has to beat Kevin Anderson to reach a Wimbledon final, uh, I don't know. I'm liking his chances. Any other day if they, of the year they play, I like Anderson. But I think Isner really senses that this could be the only chance 
And that's why I think he's an X-factor. Even in terms of ability and grass, he's definitely fourth in all the semifinalists, and Anderson is third because the other one is a heavyweight clash. Uh, we, you know, we don't know how it's going to play out. Uh, I'm going to make a prediction, and then you can follow suit before we can, uh, then we can switch to the women's draw. Uh, I think it's uh, Djokovic Isner on Sunday, and uh, uh, I'm going to make a bold move and uh, say Novak Djokovic, you know, uh, will lose this final to John Isner in four sets. Okay, I'm not doing this just to be different. Um, and I should tell listeners that in our uh, tennis accent, at our Tennis with an Accent website, we did a roundtable before Wimbledon began, in which we all made our predictions for the tournament. And before the tournament began, I did have a Federer Nadal final, like most other people on, on our staff did, but I did pick Nadal, and I did pick Nadal because the weather was indeed supposed to be very hot and dry during the fortnight, creating that high, higher clay-style bounce uh, that you refer to, Sakib. So I'm going to stick with my prediction of Nadal, and I am going to take Kevin Anderson uh, over Isner in that semifinal. Obviously, as you listen to this show on Saturday, I might already have been proven wrong, uh, but, but, you know, we have to be transparent and accountable so uh, as we record this episode, uh, I think that Anderson uh, is going to win. That's my prediction. But um, I, I have Nadal beating Anderson in Sunday's final. All right. We didn't uh, make this up, so uh, I didn't know. I thought you were going to go with Nadal. But, yeah, that's, that's, those are both bold picks, and uh, we both could be dead wrong. So on that note, uh, Serena Williams has returned to the Wimbledon final. Uh, nothing this woman does should surprise anyone. Uh, and even by her standards, this has to be a special, you know, she's done a lot of special things on her tennis court. And when I was picking uh, the draw bracket, I thought everyone's picking Petra Kvitova. I changed my pick last minute. I had picked Petra, who obviously was a first-round casualty. She came in the tournament playing the best tennis, but then you have to win in these two weeks. And I just thought if Serena will get three or four matches under her belt, she would be very tough to beat. And now I'm a match closer for making a correct prediction. And I like her chances against uh, Germany's Angelique Kerber in the final. I think Serena can win this thing and uh, win her eighth Wimbledon title. Uh, over to you, Matt. How do you see this one? Well, it, the, the match has just ended as you listen to this show on Saturday. Uh, I do think that Serena's going to win. That That's my prediction. So as of this as of this moment, it might already be proven wrong, and Kerber has certainly been very formidable throughout this tournament. She has taken down a lot of big hitters. She's taken down a lot of young, rising stars on the WTA Tour, Daria Kasatkina, Yelena Ostapenko, and, uh, Naomi Osaka. She's mowed them all down. These are rising young players. Uh, Kasatkina and, and Osaka, for those who don't know, they both met in the final of the prestigious Indian Wells Tournament in California back in March. So Kerber's handled, handled all of those young guns on the women's tour. The idea of her beating Serena in a rematch of the 2016 Wimbledon final, won by Serena, uh, would not rate as a big upset. It might be a slight surprise just because Serena enters that match having won seven Wimbledon titles, but Kerber winning a third major title uh, would hardly rate as a shock. Uh, as soon as Simona Halep, the world number one, lost in the third round of this Wimbledon tournament. Kerber did become the majority pick, the favorite in the top half of the draw. So the fact that she got to the final uh, is no surprise, and being able to beat Serena would be no surprise either. So uh, in terms of Serena's Wimbledon, one very important thing to note is that uh, – when Madison Keys lost in the third round, we were deprived of a fourth-round showdown uh, between Serena and Keys. Serena being the present tense in American tennis, and Madison Keys, along with Sloane Stephens, being the future of American women's tennis. If Keys had been able to make that meeting with Serena, Keys serve one of the very best in women's tennis could have given Serena problems, but Serena avoided that match. Uh, she played Evgenia Rodina uh, in the fourth round of Wimbledon instead of Keys. It was a much better matchup. Uh, Rodina was not fully fit 
for that match. She went, underwent a lot of wear and tear in that keys match, including a visit from the trainer. Um, so Serena was able to, as you noted, Sakia, build momentum in that fourth round. And then in the quarterfinals, she made only nine unforced errors. And in Thursday's semifinal against Julia Gurgis, she made only seven unforced errors in a ridiculously clean performance. This is a person who almost died uh, due to complications after childbirth within the past year. She's almost 37 years old, uh, very similar to Roger Federer. The, the two are only a month and a half apart in terms of their birthdays in 1981. Uh, what she is doing here is absolutely phenomenal. It's absolutely improbable. And what's, what's really ridiculous about it, how easy Serena is making it look. But, of course, it's anything but easy in reality. You put it best at the start of this conversation about Serena Williams. This was not expected, but nothing Serena does, nothing great that Serena does is ever surprising because she's Serena Williams and the rest of us are not. And I would like to make a point. I mean, uh, I agree. Madison Keys was like the stellar, you know, the, the big match everybody was looking uh, in that section of the draw. But then same thing happened in the men's draw. You know, like in tennis, uh, you don't pick your opponent. It's a knockout system. So that's why a good draw can become a horrible draw and a, and a very tough draw can become an easy draw. Ask John Isner. Even as great as no champions Djokovic uh, is and Nadal is. I mean, I think losses of Nick Kyrgios would always leave a taste because we don't know how Kyrgios would have fared against Djokovic in the quarterfinals, but it's not Djokovic's fault that Nick cannot advance, you know, past that stage. I know you are a big advocate that uh, Nick Kyrgios has never made that uh, cut yet, but uh, he he had all the tools to test these guys, and uh, guess what? He lost to Kenny Shikori, and Kenny Shikori is, is, is a very solid player, but he does everything Novak Djokovic does better. But back to Serena Williams, yeah. I think, uh, where does this put her? I mean, she's already, I think, is she the greatest tennis player according to you, uh, on the, on the, on the women's side? And, uh, where does this one, one more win? Where would this rank in her, in her set of, you know, uh, majors she has won and everything that she's accomplished? I am personally on record as saying that Martina Navratilova is the greatest women's tennis player of all time. However, however, if Serena does indeed wind up winning her 24th major title, uh, against Kerber, and if she does it in this particular context, after childbirth, after health complications, after a long period of time in which she was very physically limited, uh, it would be her best achievement to date. Uh, and it's not because of the time off. It's not necessarily because she's a mother. It's all those things wrapped together uh, in, in a complete context. What we're, what we would, what we are seeing from Serena is unprecedented. It would be something entirely new within the story of women's tennis. Not necessarily winning as a mom, because Yvonne Gulagong, uh, did that during her career. It's more of Serena being a mom and winning it almost at age 37. That is the uncharted territory here. For her to just storm into Wimbledon, dominate the tournament, uh, and capture an eighth Wimbledon title after everything she's gone through in terms of health worries, uh, something that Ivan Gulagong didn't have to deal with, uh, that it would be a standalone achievement, uh, the likes of which we had ne- we have never seen. And that's not hyperbole. That's just straightforward, basic reality with, without any complications or caveats. So Serena does keep rewriting the record books, and she keeps redefining standards of what it means to do incredible things on a tennis court. So even though I I evaluate Martina Navratilova very highly because she did everything that she did while also winning women's doubles majors and mixed doubles majors, she did everything she did in all three different disciplines uh, that a tennis player can partake in at the majors. Even though Martina has that incredible record of overall titles won across the three different disciplines, all while having a rival, Chris Evert, who prevented her from winning more major titles. That's something that Serena never had. It's something that Steffi Groff didn't quite have. She had it in Monica Seles for a few years, but after Seles was stabbed, that rivalry wasn't ever the same thing again. 
So while I do think that Martina, for a number of reasons, uh, is my personal number one, if, if you wanted to say that Serena is the best ever, you really would not get an argument from me because Serena's case is formidable and it grows better and better and better each and every day. All right, man. I think we covered plenty. Thanks for doing this. Uh, your views are as insightful as ever. Hopefully, the listeners do enjoy, uh, you know, the contributions you made today. And everyone who's listening, please stay right here. Uh, we'll have an NBA analyst, Joseph Nardone, joining us very soon after the break. Uh, hey, guys. Uh, let me uh, uh, welcome Joseph Nardone from New York, uh, who's our NBA uh, analyst for today. Uh, he's a, a columnist for the Clutchpoint app website, which can be found at clutchpoints.com. Joe has written for numerous publications covering college and pro basketball. He's also the co-host of the Off the Wall Basketball Podcast with Jared Mintz. Uh, welcome, Joe. Looking forward to this chat. Oh, appreciate you having me on. Can't wait to get started. So since you know we are uh, in, in the Boston market and Celtics are always a big talking point here, uh, depending on you know how the free agency has gone and uh, what their roster is, uh, just walk us through uh, you know uh, how the Celtics stand right now. They have some key players who will be coming back from injury, and who are they targeting uh, in this off season? Is Marcus Smart one of them? And is a smart is it a smart move? Um, well, the Marcus Smart deal. So right now the Celtics are at a hundred and twelve million dollars in committed salary for next season. The uh, the salary cap, uh, the luxury line is at $123.7 million for next year. Mm-hmm. So basically the Marcus Smart deal, as Danny Age has been been bringing up, is he said he'll claim he'll match any offer, um, but he'll probably go up to the $12 million mark. The Kings have been rumored to, inter- to be interested in giving him $15 million a year. And if they're to offer fifteen, I'm not too sure if Boston would match because they don't really want to go over the uh, – the, the luxury tax and and, and wow. because in reality not just what mark is smart but free agents in general they they really only have 11 million dollars to play with 11.4 to be technical if they don't want to cross the luxury tax so it really puts them in a tough spot at 12 million dollars sure you go over the luxury tax to, to get marcus smart it doesn't put you that much over um but it, it'll it'll put the boston in the spot to not be able to pick any other free agents up unless they want to go way past the threshold and then play have the ownership pay a, a pretty steep penalty in that regard. Uh, okay, absolutely. And in this, you know, day and age of the mobile NBA market, uh, you think is this move like something for a long term in mind or you never know with these kind of moves to begin with? It's a little bit of both, right? Because when you're playing with like, because I feel like here's where Boston, Boston's roster is excellent. It's very young. It's dynamic. It's deep. They have, I mean, they've been this way for a few years now where Danny Ainge has so many great assets they could he could package at a later point if he wants a more proven star, but I feel like they already have some like that, like not proven, but guys that are really growing that role, like Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown's emerged as a really good player, and so on and so forth. Where they, I think Boston's always looking at the long pick at the long view, and then there's always that deal with the luxury tax line where if you start exceeding it and then you go over it for three straight years, it becomes a huge, huge issue where the ownership's paying just a, a ton ton of money. And I think that's part of the thing. Like, they really like Marcus Smart. He's the fir- perfect fit for this team. And he's not really replaceable. As deep as Boston is, like, Terry Rozier can't guard like Marcus. There's nobody like a Marcus Smart. Jalen Brown's close to it, but they play separate positions, guard different guys. Uh, Marcus Smart's a little more proven. But at that point it's kind of one of those deals where you kind of just got to let them walk because you're already so deep. You don't need to push the issue just for one guy. And suppose if we uh, do miss, uh, you know, miss out on him, you think uh, with the current rosters throughout the Eastern conference, uh, the Celtics, the team to beat with, of course, now LeBron has, you know, moved to the West coast. Uh, How do you see uh, that landscape on the East coast with the Celtics? It's, it's Boston and Philly. And I think Boston is, is still the better team. Like you, People get a lot like in the free agency's fun and it's sexy and it's it's great to follow, but we always forget about in, internal franchise development where guys like Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Terry Rozier are going to get better season over season. Same thing with the Sixers with Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons and so forth. The other thing is Boston's getting Gordon Hayward again. Like didn't have he he played for a little bit of one game last season. He got hurt. He's returning to the fold. Kyrie Irving obviously missed the end of last season, the playoff run. 
he's returning to the fold. And then whatever other moves Danny Age might feel like he has to make. But yeah, I think it's really Boston's division, like by a pretty good measure. And then it's Philadelphia, a relatively close second. And then there's a pretty, I don't want to say a steep drop, but there's going to be a drop after that because Toronto's going through this weird phase where it looks like they're on the market to trade everybody and they just changed head coaches. All right, so let's address the big news, which is now almost, uh, what, a week old. Uh, LeBron's a Laker. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, analysts, I'm sure, like uh, even on your podcast, that was a projected move uh, of all the markets, you know, that, that seemed the likely candidates. Now he's in L.A. Uh, how does that uh, change the landscape of the Western Conference? And uh, as an NBA fan and as an NBA analyst, do you like that move? Um, as an, as both a fan and an analyst, I like it. Because I know, in theory, to beat the Warriors, he would have been better served going to Boston or Philly. Um but now what this does is it provides another team that's interesting, right? Now it's Boston, Philly, Houston, Golden State, and the Lakers, and other teams, obviously. So it adds a whole new team to the mix that are interesting. As far as how it impacts the Western Conference, it gives us another enjoyable team to watch. It's weird how they surround, like, the immediate impact afterward, ending Rajon Rondo, Lance Stevenson, and a couple other guys, where it's basically they just got every player that LeBron James ever hated and put him on one team. Um, so I thought that was interesting. He's surrounded by non-shooters, which is not traditionally how you build around LeBron James' team. But I think it does put Le- – the Lakers are obviously going to be a playoff team. You can put LeBron on almost any team in the history of the NBA and make them that much better. Um, but, yeah, like they, they become like the fourth or fifth best team probably in the Western Conference, which is insane considering where they were just a season ago. And, uh, you know, sticking at LeBron, with LeBron, he's still a very young 33-year-old. I mean, his body, even though has seen, you know, I think it was close to 15 seasons in the NBA, he's still, I think, easily the best player in the league. And uh, and I think it's pretty, uh, uh, it's a remarkable turn in his career because in the East, he was always, what he played like eight or nine finals in a row. And now mm-hmm. he's putting everything on the line if the Kawhi Leonard uh, trade doesn't materialize or uh, he, they are not going to be the favorites in the West. And that's that's a bold move considering... You know how these guys are always validating legacies, and you know they're talking about the the goat discussion. So he's really taking the Warriors and even the Rockets head on. I mean, there's no guarantee that he's going to even be in the Western Final if they don't get Leonard. Oh, you're totally right. I think this move isn't. So he did the three years plus one player option. I, I'm guessing here. I don't have any like inside information that this year they he knew he was going there. It was going to be a wash. They signed a bunch of these veterans that they brought in, like Rondo and and the other guys, on a one-year deal. I think that was just to try to help appease, make the first year a playoff-level team, let guys like Lonzo Ball, Brandon Ingram, and and Kyle Kuzma develop, see how much they develop. And then next year, next offseason, I think that's when we're going to see the the big moves the Lakers, Rob Palenka, Magic Johnson, are going to actually try to do to surround uh, LeBron James with, you know, higher quality players where they can, can compete with Houston and Golden State. Because right now they're not even close to doing that. I, 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 I'm guessing the plan here is see Alonzo Ball, Kuzma, Brandon Ingram, Ingram develop, make it to the playoffs, get Lakers fans excited, and then go, head into next offseason, see if it, this is one of those deals where they're going to have to trade one of those young pieces or if they're going to, if they're developing in a way where they could keep them and they'll be more equipped to win the following year. Because I think, there's a, de- a better chance Golden State looks far different in a year from now. Chris Paul, a year from now, is going to look far different. Like the season after the next one, Chris Paul is going to be far different. It, it's mm. it's going to be a better, a more appropriate landscape for the Lakers to attack free agency the, the next offseason, not this one. And uh, what's the timeline looking for Kawhi Leonard? Where he's going to end up? Is he going to be a Spur? What, what's, what's going on there with Popovich and, uh, you know, in Spur Nation? This has been one of the – it's one overshadowed a bit because of a lot of LeBron James stuff, but it's the craziest stuff going on where we have the guy that no, nobody ever heard talk and Kawhi Leonard rebelling against, you know, notably one of the most notable uh, classiest franchises in all sports. And he just doesn't want to be there for whatever the reason there's murmurs and rumors of whatever's happening, but none of them are actually like reported on factual information. He's definitely not going to be there. Uh, Greg Popovich, there's been a couple report of him on record stating um, that if they're going to trade him, he wants to trade uh, Kawhi somewhere where that he's happy going to. And then there's this whole other thing where supposedly Leonard doesn't want to play with LeBron James or Leonard doesn't want to do this. And Leonard doesn't want to that. We don't know that for sure. This is all leaks. 
And it's probably coming from his agent to try to keep him away from going from a market or a team that's not close to winning. Um, I do think he's going to be moved, traded well before the season, though, because if he doesn't want to be there, there's no reason for San Antonio to try to make it happen. No reason to force it. San Antonio will have a couple more. They, have, I mean, they still have a few more months to see if they could work him back into the fold like they did a little Marcus Aldridge when LaMarcus Aldridge wasn't unhappy. But it does. there's no signs pointing to that happening. And before we let you go, what are still some of the intriguing pieces that remain in this free agency? Who are some of the big names or, or like good quality names that are being shopped around or tossed around? Well, it's tough now because most of the most of the guys left, I don't want to say most, like Marcus Smart, we already touched on, is for me the most intriguing player because even though he's a restricted free agent, where he's somebody on any team that's close to winning will be a tremendous ad because he's one of the best defensive players in the entire NBA. He's uh, he's become a, a far better three point shooter. And then, but it's weird the offers that he's getting. He's getting it from teams that aren't even close, like Sacramento. And you just wonder why a team like Sacramento would chase him. Sacramento did a similar thing with a player not even close to as good as Mark Smart and Zach Levine from Chicago, where they're just over offering money to players that probably don't demand that kind of money and it makes really no sense um other than that though it's it's one of those deals where i feel like a lot of the restrictive free agents are going to get offers that are just going to be matched by the teams because there's not a lot of cool sexy movable pieces now that lebron and all that happens now there's there's a chance that trades might happen which loosen up a couple other things where if carmelo anthony gets traded he might possibly get waived after he gets traded and if that happens and he clears waivers, then he can become a free agent that a lot of people will be interested in. Okay, so that was some valuable insight, Joseph. And hopefully, you know, we'll have you back on the show. Thanks for taking time out. And uh, yeah, uh, hopefully talk to you soon. All right, thanks for, so much for having me on. I appreciate it. For this week. Uh, and we'll be back next week with more tennis uh, coverage from the Newport Hall of Fame Tennis Championships, where I'll be on site covering the event. Thanks for listening. Bye now.